Those of you who remain, whether here in person or on the live stream, I will invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 9, which um, when we were scheduling uh, congregational meetings for officer elections and planning out sermon series, I did not intentionally uh, have it land this way. That's uh, in the Lord's providence, but here we are uh, talking about trustworthy leadership as we consider the qualifications uh, for elder. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, this is God's word. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. Let's pray that you would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us what we need to know about what trustworthy leadership really looks like. That we might not be deceived, that we might pursue what you would have us to pursue, and that we might know what you've called your church to to be and to do for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what do we need to know about leadership in the church? You know, little things often exert great influence over larger things. Uh, The rudder on a ship, these little steering wheels that we use to to steer two-ton vehicles or three-ton vehicles, as the case may be, down the highway at exorbitant speeds. Um, It only takes a spark to get a fire going, if you remember that old song. Sometimes the little things exert a large influence on the bigger things, and this is true in many institutions and organizations, and it's true in the church. And this is why when, with sadness, I read of scandal after scandal after scandal in the church throughout the country, throughout the world, all too often it comes down not to some gossipy widow, but to corrupt leaders who didn't hold on to Christ, but instead sought their own gain and glory. But also, when I read about churches that are Growing and serving the poor and seeing people come to Christ. That, that ministry vision isn't held together by just one person who exerts all the control, but by this leadership, formal and informal, that's bought in to what Christ has called that church to be. In good things and in bad, leadership, this little thing, often exerts great influence over the church. Why is it this way? 
There's a saying in ministry, and it's true, and it's what this passage is reminding us of, and it's this. As the leadership goes, so goes the church. As the leadership goes, so goes the church. That can be for good. That can be for ill. So what would this passage teach us about leadership so that we can see this work itself out for good here at Calvary? We're going to look at three things this morning. First, that the church needs leadership. God is addressing it here in his word. This isn't something that we should leave unattended. The church needs leadership. The church needs healthy leadership. And the church needs leadership that reflects the King, our Lord Jesus Christ himself. So let's look at those three things this morning. First, to consider that the church needs leadership. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul says in verse 5, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is the whole purpose for Titus to even be where he is, to see leadership raised up for the church there in Crete. But what kind? What kind of leadership? Hierarchical leadership where Titus like appoints people and then and they do what he says and then the people under them do what they say and the people under them do what they say and the people under them do what they say. Is that what's going on here? Or is it more congregational where he's going to each congregation and he's appointing elders and then they all just run themselves and they don't really have anything to do with one another? They just, each congregation decides it's, it's for itself what they're going to do. What, what, what kind of leadership? It's interesting that Paul talks about putting what remained into order. Like this, this connects, in my mind, back to Moses' ministry, where his father-in-law comes up to him, this exhausted prophet who has wearied himself by trying to care for the multitude of the Israelites. And his father-in-law, Jethro, says, why do you think you need to do it all by yourself? Appoint some elders. Appoint different leaders and representatives to, to handle all that's going on with these hundreds of thousands of people. Don't think that you need to do it on your own. Put some order and structure there so that you might actually be the prophet and leader God called you to be. And here, part of putting what remained into order included appointing, raising up, training elders for each congregation. In fact, that's what Presbyterian means. It doesn't mean frozen. It it comes from the Greek word presbyteros, which just means elder. To be a Presbyterian church is to be an elder-led church. And you could make the argument, it's not explicit, but you could make the argument, and I'm making it now, that the church has always been Presbyterian. Of course, that means it's true that all of the problems that we have in the church now are Presbyterian problems. So don't let it go to your head. But this elder-led congregation wasn't to live in isolation. This is why Paul sent letters to be 
circulated and read in each church. This is why we read in Acts 15 that when a a crisis confronted the church, that the elders and leaders gathered together for the first general assembly and, and shared with one another what they thought God was calling them to do and to be, and then issued guidance and ruling for all the churches. There is in this Presbyterian form of government, this grassroots and leadership structure where each congregation has elders. They connect with one another in different areas and regions here in Crete, Asia Minor, elsewhere. And then they connect with one another as a, an entire church. That's, that's what Presbyterian is. It is a form of church government where congregations elect elders, where we send those elders as representatives to the regional grouping of churches, a presbytery. We are a member of Tidewater Presbytery, where... Those presbyteries send elders and representatives to general assembly so that the church can make its its will known from the bottom up. And as the the leaders of the church gather and consider and pray, we can also issue guidance down to every congregation in the care of that congregation. And what's the point of all this? Jesus has chosen to lead his people through delegated authority. Jesus has all the authority. He has all the authority in heaven and on earth. But he doesn't hold it white-knuckled, stomp on everybody that doesn't see it his way. He brings people in. He, the chief shepherd, recruits under shepherds and delegates that authority in different ways. In different spheres of life, he delegates authority to the state in the civil sphere. He delegates authority in families, in the the family sphere, and in the church. He delegates his authority through elders. So how does that work itself out here at Calvary? One, there's, there's more to do in the church than any one man can do. This is why Paul left Titus in Crete. Paul had other things he was responsible to do. He had other things God was calling him to be. And this is why Paul tells Titus, and Titus, it's not your job to run all the churches. You can't possibly care for all these believers scattered all over this island. Raise up elders. One of the reasons I am Presbyterian, I grew up Methodist, I chose to be Presbyterian, is because I I don't trust myself to decide all the things. I can't tell you the number of times I've been leading a committee meeting and I'm like, I think we should do it this way. And this older and wiser pastor or elder says, but have you thought about this? And the answer is almost always no. In fact, I had not even considered that as a possibility. And I'm so glad to have a, a diversity of wisdom guidance and input. But also, I'm encouraged that that it all doesn't fall on one person's shoulders to bear all of the burdens of the church. Who's up for the task? Not me. I can can hardly hold it together in just one week of ministry. I can't carry everything. I can't know all the things that are going on in your life. This is why we, as as a practical aspect of ministry, assign every family to a shepherding elder and deacon 
so that we can delegate the care of our congregation so that you have somebody you can reach out to when there are needs and concerns of your own. And in this ministry, the elders are to focus on on the ministry of the word to make sure that this, this sound doctrine goes forth with clarity and with power. The deacons who are addressed in other places in Scripture, are to focus on this ministry of service, to see the the grace of liberality and generosity expanded in the, the members of the congregation. And all of us working together, using all of our gifts, no matter who we are, men and women, adults and children, all of us are called to serve together. In fact, our book of church order makes it explicit that the session, the elders, session is just a fancy word for seated, the elders seated at the city gate. The board, we don't like to call it a board of elders because that implies that we're just a business. It's, it's a session. It's a group of elders seeking to, to, to do the ministry of the word. Our book of church order calls us explicitly to appoint godly men and women to assist in the work of ministry, which is why we have ministry leaders all kinds of different backgrounds and ages serving from nursery ministry to kitchen ministry to men's ministry to women's ministry and everything in between. And in, as we consider the, this delegated nature of authority, it's right that we should, even as we remember the passage that was read earlier from Hebrews 13, consider that, that there is then for every person Whatever station of life, always an opportunity for you to lead as well, whether formally or informally. Maybe that is you're keeping the nursery and leading our or children's church and leading our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. One of the most effective leaders I've ever had when I did college ministry was this quiet person who, like, I'm not sure you could have paid him a lot of money to talk in front of a group. Like, he, would, he would have sooner disappeared off the face of the earth than to address a crowd. And yet he was one of the most effective leaders because every week before our large group meeting, he was there 15 or 20 minutes early setting up chairs. I never asked him to do that. He never recruited anybody else to do it, but people looked around and all of a sudden, other people started showing up 15, 20 minutes early to set up chairs. And other people st- and all of a sudden we had a, a chair set up team. All because this guy was like, well, I'm not going to speak in front of the group, but I can lead by example. And he set up chairs. There's always, every stage of life, every gifting, everywhere for each of you an opportunity to lead. That's how Jesus leads his church by delegating that authority. But not just any sort of leader will do. The church needs healthy leadership. You can have all the skills of leadership in the world and read all the leadership books and know all the things that you're supposed to do. And if you don't have integrity, if you don't have character, if you don't bear the fruit of the spirit, you will use those skills to destroy and tear down, not to build up and encourage. 
This is what happened to Israel. When they wanted a leader, they wanted a king. Just give us a king, God. We don't care how or who. Just give us a king. And so God gave them a king who looked the part, who had the skills. But Saul was the worst kind of king because he came, became selfish and cowardly. And it was all about him and his glory and not faithful service to the Lord. It's not just any kind of leader that will do. And so it's no coincidence that what Paul directs Titus to do is to raise up elders that meet a list of character qualifications, not a list of skill qualifications. Skills can be taught. Public speaking can be taught. Bible study and methods can be taught. But if you don't have character, if you don't love the Lord, if you aren't growing in him and in holiness, what kind of leader would you really be? And so we find a list of qualifications that describe someone who is a man of God in word and in deed, in public and in private. He's above reproach. He's the husband of one wife, which is to say he's a a one-woman man. He's faithful to his spouse. His children are believers. The word there is literally faithful. They're faithful. They're obedient. They're not reckless. If he can't bring order to his own family, how can he hope to govern uh, the church? It doesn't mean that every elder's children all have to grow up to be professing Christians because we, we don't control that. Fathers don't control that. The Lord alone is able to bring people in heart and soul to himself. But there is something to be said for. He tends to use the family to bring the good news first. So, what kind of parent are they? Because they're God's steward, right? And so they must be above reproach not arrogant, not quick-tempered. They need to be humble. They're not in it for themselves. They're not in it for gain. They're not in it to, to exert their will on others. They're in it for the Lord. They're God's steward. And as God's steward, they ought to reflect God's priorities in how they minister and in how they lead. And what are God's priorities? if not his people, that he loves and cherishes, that he came himself to seek out and to save. The Lord who came and took on flesh, who became a man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and did not come as a conqueror, but as a savior who gave his own life as a ransom for many. Who came to serve, not to be served. And so those he delegates his leadership to are called as God's stewards to reflect God's priorities and how they govern in the church. To serve and not seek to be served. To give, even though it may be a sacrifice. To offer themselves for others that they might be built up in the Lord that they might receive the gain. And what is remarkable is that this doesn't just apply to elders. 
in First Timothy 3, where Paul has a similar list of qualifications, he says, it's good to desire to be an overseer. It's good to desire to be an elder. It's good. Why? Not because you, you, you get power. Oh, it's good to have this ambition to conquer the church and to rule it. But because in these qualifications is encapsulated a heart for Christ and a life for Christ. And it's good to desire to have a heart for the Lord and to live for the Lord. And it's good for all of us in every aspect of life, in all the places where we have opportunities to lead, in our families, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in the church, formally and informally, to reflect the glory and grace and kindness and love and holiness of Christ in all that we say and do. This is why Paul tells Titus that the church doesn't just need leaders. It doesn't just need healthy leaders. It needs leaders that reflect the kingship of Christ. Here I am preaching on this. I'm confronted with the, the stark reality that I am not up for that. You don't have to go far to find a a record of my failings, of my inability to lead my family, this church, my community in a way that reflects Christ. The, The list of regrets is long. Who, who is able to lead in this way? And yet there's something to be said for where your heart is. Have you ever watched kids play house? Like, where do they come up with the, some of the stuff that they do, right? And it, it doesn't take long to figure out, like, did they, did they learn this from watching TV, Days of Our Lives, or you, right? Like, like there's a healthy way to play house and maybe a twisted and corrupting way to play house. And it all hinges on who are you imitating is, is the, the source of your inspiration, is where you're striving to go, is, is who you're emulating healthy and good or corrupt and wicked. And so Paul says that these leaders, these elders, they need to be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict that. But that's not just a skill. That is the outflow of of their hearts, that these are men who hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. They're not perfect. They're not blameless. They need the saving power of the, the Lord Jesus Christ just as much as all of us do. But they have a heart for Jesus and they hold tight to that good word, that gospel message that Jesus Christ redeems sinners. And he shapes them and sanctifies them and leads them in the way of everlasting life and not in the way of corruption and death. So no, there is never going to be a person who ever stands for leadership in the church who is perfect. Do they have a heart for the Lord? Is that heart for the Lord reflected in a humility 
a confidence not in their skill, but in the power of God. Power of the gospel, which is the power of God to save the lost. Do you see them quick-tempered or growing in patience, showing in their care of souls the very patience that the God of the universe shows to them? See, ultimately, Christ Jesus himself is the only king and head of the church. He is the leader of the church. And when we see the qualifications for elder and for deacon in Scripture, they are a reflection of how Jesus leads. With joy, even when the work is hard. Because it's for the building up of God's people. Serving sacrificially in love, not seeking to gain but to give, because that's how Jesus leads his church. With kindness that leads to repentance, not crushing underfoot, not thinking that if we just beat people a little bit harder with Bible verses, then they'll change but pointing them to the glory of who Christ is and what he's doing and calling on the power of the Holy Spirit to bring true change in the hearts and lives of people. This is the kind of king, this is the kind of leader that Jesus is. And so that's the kind of leader he calls us to seek. It's the kind of leader he calls you, each and every one of you, to be. Does your growth in leadership reflect your growth in Christ? Or does it reflect your growth in skills? Because ultimately what this is talking about is that We, as God's people, as the church, are to be a place where we are formed more and more in the likeness and image of God. That's why we gather to worship. That's why we gather to pray. That's why we study scripture. That's why we have discipleship groups. That's why we have small groups. So that we could take every opportunity to seek Christ and to to take one more step in growth in him. Do the leaders... We, we elect that we call on. Do they reflect Christ's own priorities for us? Do we reflect that in how we manage our households or our jobs? Or even in how we engage in our community? Would it be said of your leadership that the people you led, whether they were your children or your neighbors, or your co-workers, would it be said of you that you led in the very same way that Christ led you? Lovingly, patiently, persistently, sacrificially. Leading into holiness and not into destruction. Building up and not tearing down. Pointing to the hope of everlasting life. Look, healthy churches don't just happen, right? 
There is not a leadership book out there that I, we could just assign everybody to read. And then all of a sudden the church is perfectly healthy. If there was, we, I would already have assigned it. They require Christ. They require a heart for Jesus. And they require leaders who have a heart for Jesus. Leaders at every level. And there's a calling for you in this. To not be content with the same old, same old. To hold your leaders to a high standard. Not the standard that you read in the latest Wall Street Journal, but the standard of Christ. And to call them to account in love when they fail to meet that. But that you also strive to lead in grace, clinging not to technique, but to the Lord Jesus. So that those who look to you and your leadership see less of you and more of Christ. And as that happens more and more and more, it spills out. It has a ripple effect. It grows and it grows and it grows. And the whole church is caught up. And that Christ word grows. Because, as I said before, as the leadership goes, so goes the church. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, give us this heart for Christ. Convict us, Lord, where we have been selfish and self-centered, where we have been idolatrous and wicked. Bring us to repentance. Lead us back to yourself. And give us wisdom, Lord, to know how to lead those around us, to spur one another on in love and good deeds. And help us, even as we elect officers later this morning, to do so prayerfully with wisdom, seeking those who would lead us to you, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.